Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Oklahoma City is getting a new arena downtown for the Thunder. Voters overwhelmingly said yes to extending a penny sales tax to pay for the building. Voters approved the measure 71 to 29, what Mayor David Holt calls one of the biggest margins of victory for a MAPS election. Ryan, were you surprised by the results? Not at all. You know, I think that the no campaign on an issue like this always faced an uphill battle. I mean, you have uh, a lot of folks that were motivated to show up and support this. There was a sense that a no vote was a vote against the thunder uh, remaining in Oklahoma City, uh, and a yes vote was a vote in support of the thunder. And um, you know, even still, it is you know surprising. My my good friend Amanda Ewing uh, mentioned the, the other day that even as a Democrat and a, and a liberal in the state of Oklahoma, you can't be on the winning side of an election, even whenever it's to not raise taxes. Uh, so. You know, here we are, you know, the, the you know, some of the more liberal progressive folks on the side of not wanting to raise taxes or like maintain uh, an existing tax, uh, as, as I think the mayor would say, is it's not raising taxes, it's maintaining an existing tax. But the no campaign in this always faced an uphill battle. Um, and whenever you have a special election like this, you're going to have tremendously low turnout, as we did in this case. I think, you know, somewhere just north of 15 percent turnout uh, for this election. And, you know, at the at the end of the day. Um, it was difficult, I think, for the no campaign to communicate that a no vote wasn't a vote against a new arena. It wasn't a vote against keeping the thunder in Oklahoma City, but it was really a campaign about going back to the negotiating table and asking for a better deal. You know, many folks have pointed out that the deal that Oklahoma City struck with the thunder ownership is one of the worst deals that a municipality has struck with NBA team ownership in a couple of decades in terms of the amount of participation by the owners and their investment versus the investment of taxpayers. So, but that's a difficult message to communicate. You've got a low turnout election. And, you know, ultimately we ended up in the situation where this, this is going to happen. And, you know, I think that now it's, you know, make the, make the best of the situation for everyone. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, even though I was on the other side of that and wished that we could have renegotiated the deal, I'm glad that the Thunder are going to be in Oklahoma City uh, for you know, hopefully a very long time at this point, uh, and that some of the profits that come into the owner's pockets, you know, ultimately funnel down and, and help out the entire community. Neva. Well, I think, I mean, as we talked about um, almost from the outset of this election being called, it was very clear the contrast. I think voters um, while I think even the uh, uh, the manager of the Yes campaign said that they really didn't quite anticipate the turnout that they got, it was overwhelming. 71% is a landslide in anyone's book in terms of, uh, of an election victory. And when you have 58,000 votes cast, 41,000 of those uh, Yes votes, I mean, there was a strong sentiment in Oklahoma City among voters that this is something that they were willing to pay for. And I think the argument, uh, the liberal versus conservative, 
uh, on the issues of, you know, will there will this be taking away money from uh, doing other things for uh, uh, the uh, homeless population or mental health services or all the things that the no campaign tried to somewhat focus on. I think the flip side was voters recognize that if you're not going to maintain a big league city atmosphere and positioning uh, in in terms of cities of comparable size, you're not going to have the dollars. You're not going to have the infrastructure. You're not going to have the ability to do the things far beyond just what this arena does in terms of economic development, keeping the thunder here, and all of the other things that uh, go along with it. So I think it was interesting looking at the vote totals that uh, this was a case where uh, Oklahoma City uh, encompasses technically four counties uh, and all all of those, um, three of the four, uh, which Pottawatomie County has just a couple of voters in, so you really kind of uh, dismiss that in the statistics, but Cleveland County, Oklahoma County, and Canadian County overwhelmingly by more than two to one margins uh, uh, said that uh, the voters there were for this this proposal. So um, I think the group uh, that uh, that worked hard to put together a coalition and by their own admission tried to bring groups that were not typically just sports minded, but people that wanted to be involved and in, and in the conversation about the, the larger picture of downtown Oklahoma City in the next generation. I think they should be applauded for their effort and uh, we'll look forward with interest what they do in terms of now making the next big decision, which will be where that arena actually will be built. And, and you know, I'll tell you what, if we could just get sidewalks in my neighborhood so that I could walk to that arena uh, and more importantly, walk my kids to school on, on sidewalks instead of people through people's yards and in the middle of the street with traffic, I think that you know I'll, I'll be I'll be a lot happier Oklahoma city resident. You need to call your councilman because I it, virtually everywhere I I drive in Oklahoma City there's sidewalks almost uh, without exception. So uh, I I think uh, I think you better put that political call in Ryan and uh, see we'll see what's going on in your ward. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the state representative Mark McBride is attacking state superintendent Ryan Walters and his aide for immaturity and lack of transparency at the Department of Education. The more Republican issued a third inquiry for information from the agency. Walters senior advisor Matt Langston slipped a note under McBride's door saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. McBride called the action childish and Langston fired back, calling McBride a whiny Democrat. Neva, what's going on here? Well, it's what continues to go on. And that's this skirmish between the um, superintendent, uh, his people and the legislators. And it, it seems to be uh, something that's not going to end anytime soon, unfortunately, for everyone concerned. And I think uh, in the release, Representative McBride basically reminded um the uh, superintendent and his administration at the State Department of Education, that it's not the State Department of Education that's in charge of appropriating or overseeing tax dollars. It's the legislature and that they do need information. They do want conversation. And again, there seems to be um, this kind of mentality of let's put the uh, senior advisor, whatever that role is of Matt Langston, let's put him front and center and uh, just have him, you know, make these uh, comments back and forth in print uh, 
with a state representative. It's beneath the dignity of both the State Department and and the personnel that uh, Ryan Walters has working for him over there. And I think the legislature is growing weary of this lack of information, lack of communication, and it's just going to escalate when we see them come back into session, which is now just around the corner uh, once we get past the holidays. So I think it's regrettable uh, that we have this type of rhetoric going back and forth when all it takes is even if they agree to disagree or even are disagreeable in the conversation, there should be a level of professionalism that just doesn't seem to be coming out of the State Department of Education. Ryan. Well, Matt Langston didn't know how to spell whiny. I don't think that he knows how to spell professionalism. And it's important to remember that he still has a job at the State Department of Education today. He's working there, funded with our tax dollars, and it speaks volumes that Ryan Walters would continue to hire and retain someone who acts like a troglodyte and goes out and picks these fights with state legislators in a way that is beneath the dignity dignity of every public servant. But He's not a political operative, and he should not be a political operative. He is a public servant. And as you said, Neva, his job is to be responsive to the legislature, cooperate with the legislature, and that's just simply not the case here. So everything that Matt Langston said uh, as unprofessional and immature and uh, as misspelled uh, as it was, you know, which is kind of ironic coming from the Department of Education, uh, there's a thing called spell check, Matt Langston. You know, you check it out. It's pretty awesome. There's a little red line under the word. Uh, that means it's spelled wrong. Um, you know, that that is happening uh, just demonstrates that lawmakers, even Representative McBride, who has been one of the most you know, vocal champions of trying to bring some transparency and accountability there, you know, they continue to hold out some hope that there's going to be a change at the State Department of Education. And I just, I think that at some point, legislators and both parties have to recognize that there are two realities here that there that are going to ex- exist. There are two options. One is a reality in which the lawmakers decide enough is enough, that the state constitution gives us the ability to bring impeachment charges on the basis of incompetence at the very least, remove him from office, and restore some sort of order, dignity, and professionalism to the State Department of Education, or the fact that we were going to have Ryan Walters and all of his uh, cronies and everybody who is out doing his bidding for him running the show for the next two years. I think that those are the two realities. I think that hoping that versus and his and his crew are somehow going to change, uh, I've got more chance of, of winning the lottery uh, than than that happening. Well, you know, and the idea that Matt Langston would have this communication with a state representative, a chairman of the uh, of the Budget and Appropriations Committee for Common Ed, a and use the word whiny. But after that, he said, "I've never seen a more whiny Democrat in my life." Mark Mark McBride is is a Republican leader in the House of Representatives, and to make that swipe and then to go on and suggest he used terms like uh, that uh, McBride was promoting porn and schools, that he was uh, uh, working hand in hand with the liberal media and every union. I think every union leader and and liberal extremist uh, should be proud. That kind of rhetoric has nothing to do with what uh, what is at hand, which is taking care of the business of education of of children in the state of Oklahoma. And 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 the fact that we're having to talk about this is really regrettable. I would hope they would turn the page uh, at the State Department and 
take a new look at January and say, we are going to work hard to have a relationship with the legislature. We're going to have different views, clearly, from some of the lawmakers, but we can work through a process in a in a manner that I think Oklahomans uh, should demand of uh, of the of the state superintendent and every lawmaker. And so we'll see what happens come January one. And I think if we're going to see something like that, the the signal from the State Department of Ed would be to start turning over these documents and kick Mac Langston to the curb. I mean, there there's not a statewide elected official of either party that I can think of uh, in the history of the state where someone who works d- directly beneath them would go and say these kind of comments, even whenever they've got a disagreement, but to make even these comments campaign, publicly. It, even in a campaign, yeah. it's, uh, it's pushing the envelope. <laughs> right. And and not, not lose your job yeah. is is just astounding yeah. and pathetic. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is criticizing the Tulsa School Board for installing Ebony Johnson as the permanent superintendent of the district. Walters had wanted a national search for a superintendent, but after the 4-2 to two vote Monday night, he called the board a, quote, rubber stamp and threatened it with, quote, drastic action. Ryan, what do you think of Walters' reaction to the decision? Well, first of all, let's say congratulations to Dr. Ebony Johnson. Uh, and yeah, I think that what a, what a tremendous honor it is and recognition of, of her leadership that you know she is now the permanent superintendent of Tulsa Public Schools, a graduate of Tulsa Public Schools, somebody who has a vested interest in its success, who understands that there are challenges facing that school district, enormous challenges, uh, who has done everything they can, and and just with the patience of Job, dealing with somebody like Ryan Walters, trying to to be cooperative and be collaborative with the State Department of Education since she became interim superintendent. The, The fact that her assuming this position isn't something that we even can have a moment of celebration both for, for her, uh, but also celebration that the, you know, the second largest school district in the state has moved beyond an interim superintendent. I mean, that's such an important uh, fact in and of itself. You know, when you've got an interim, there are a lot of things that just can't happen um, within a school district. So by them moving quickly, installing her as the, the full-time permanent superintendent, it allows the school district to begin to take a lot of these measures that I think that many people in Tulsa, uh, including the mayor uh, of Tulsa, uh, said in the, the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce have all said need to happen. Um, so, you know, Ryan Walters is out on an island in the steel and, and continues to act contrary to the idea of local control, which used to be something that Republicans and Democrats agreed with, that these school districts ought to have the, the ability to make decisions about their budget, about their policy, and, and ultimately who's going to be their leader and their superintendent. Uh, so, you know, these, these empty threats that, that he's, you know, shooting out there are just, you know, more and, 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 you know, more rhetoric, more talking points, more press releases, but empty of any substance whatsoever. Neva. Well, and, and you're right, Ryan. I mean, a school board has basically three things by statute they're supposed to do that they are responsible uh, to do, and that is that they uh, they take care of hiring their superintendent uh, and supervising that that person, individual. They set policy and they approve the annual budget. So uh, it was the job of the school board to take a look at this. I think the weighing in of Superintendent Walters um, trying to push at the last minute for this notion that there should be a national search. I mean, it, 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 there, the conflict in the rhetoric is 
is pretty simple, I think, for people to look at. On one hand, they want results immediately, and you have the clock ticking, and if you don't get the results, uh, drastic measures are going to be taken. And on the other hand, you are um, suggesting that a national search is the only good option for choosing uh, the next superintendent. And that, as anyone knows, is a very lengthy, protracted uh, process that is anything uh, but uh, months, if not years sometimes, uh, uh, to uh, come up with uh, a short list of candidates, let alone uh, a final selection by the uh, the school board. So, again, I think, as you, as you mentioned, Ryan, the fact that uh, Mayor Bynum, um, he made the point, I mean, when he said and supported the idea of uh, the superintendent uh, be the interim being made the permanent, he said he did make the point that his issue was not much of what uh, Superintendent Walters has said as far as the stated goals. I think everyone agrees, I mean, and understands the issues and the problems at hand. His issue, and he stated it, was that he disagreed with the manner and the way that uh, Walters was going about it in terms of his rhetoric and the, and the conversation and exchanges with uh, Tulsa Public Schools and their administrators. So, um, again, we're at this we're at this loggerhead where uh, are we going to be able to see folks kind of step back, let the dust settle see uh, Superintendent Johnson now be able to um, craft a plan and, and continue this five-year strategic plan, I believe that's in place and in motion, uh, to try to get the results that everyone wants to see. I mean, it's there's no question. There's a lot of problems in these big school districts. I mean, it's not isolated to one school district. It's all of the big school districts, basically, if you look at them across the state with, with respect to the uh, um, with the issues of test scores and and where they are, and it's a bigger it's a bigger conversation I think even with lawmakers on how to push the needle. I mean it's not just about money. It's not just about who's at the helm as the superintendent in a district. It's not who the superintendent of public instruction is. All of those pieces together are part of the larger conversation, and it it means that teachers, parents. Everyone have to be the, involved because they're all stakeholders. So um, again, we get that we get kind of the upshot of just the negative tone and uh, disposition of this whole conversation around selecting a superintendent. Now that that's happened, let's move forward. Governor Stitt signs an executive order prohibiting state funds for certain diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at universities. Language in the executive order specifies the prohibition applies to DEI programs and mandatory trainings to the extent they grant preferential treatment based on one's person's particular race, color, ethnicity, or national origin over another. Neva, why is the governor cracking down on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs? Well, I think this is something happening all across the country. I don't think it's just in Oklahoma. I think there is a serious pushback uh, on what has been going on for really about the last decade, where we've seen this escalation uh, in government, uh, in uh, in American uh, corporations and companies and education, I mean, <clears throat> the board, where there's, there's this uh, intense focus on uh, what is called DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now you have billion, billions, literally billions of dollars being spent um, trying to have these initiatives in the, in the workplace, uh, ostensibly to fight workplace discrimination. But when you really drill down into this, I mean, it's really just a 
a real contrast in in focus, I think, in terms of where dollars are going to be spent. I mean, if you have, I think I saw a figure where in uh, in the last three years in U.S. companies, I think back in 2020, the the uh, statistic was that over three billion was being was being spent uh, on DEI initiatives. I mean, that's off the charts and only continuing to grow. And we're seeing it in education, particularly in higher education and other places. And the impact, I mean, is is uh, um, something that I think people are now really starting to take a look at. And, you know, in fact, uh, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, Ryan Walters, he wasn't at the at the news conference and the signing that the governor had earlier this week. But he immediately sent out a uh, issued a, a statement. And, you know, he 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 made the point that uh, DEI. He, he said it should be called discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. So you've got that on the one hand, and then you've got diversity, equity, inclusion on the other. Somewhere in the middle of all of that, I think what uh, what you have a lot of uh, people that are in decision-making positions now taking a look at is what is necessary and what is not, and where can we allocate dollars more appropriately to get the results we need in the workforce uh, to the betterment of of everyone involved? So this is going to be an ongoing conversation. It's like uh, it's like many of these uh, quote uh, woke discussions that are out there. Uh, they they really germinate out of the academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, arena and then they finally kind of find themselves widespread across every area of life and now i think we're starting to see people pay attention and clearly there are differences of opinion on what should happen but i think the governor weighed in uh this week was something that again i say many governors across the state across the country are doing very much the same type of thing so this is not isolated oklahoma right well, I think that one of the things that we've seen with these DEI programs is that you know, they, they've come uh, into being for the most part in the last few years. I think that many of them are well-intentioned efforts to address discrimination and issues of inclusivity on college campuses and university campuses. We know for a fact that there are, there is prejudice, racism, uh, discrimination that happens, not just in, you know, some, you know, unnamed campus or college or university, but we can point to examples right here in, in Oklahoma where that, that has happened. But, you know, in this rush to create these positions, I do think that there has been a lack of, you know, real understanding of, of what part of DEI is effective and what part of it is really kind of this performative sense of, you know, saying that you're doing something. Uh, and in sometimes can actually become nefarious. And we, we've seen the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, an organization called FIRE, which I believe has really become the, the stalwart uh, institution and organization out defending freedom of expression and speech in the United States. One of the things that they do is they rate colleges and universities uh, across the nation. The University of Oklahoma scores quite low. Uh, on freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Oklahoma State University scores higher, but you know, not really high, um, not much higher. And then you have the University of Tulsa, which by FIRE standard received a green light rating from FIRE. Uh, and the, you know, their president, Brad Carson, uh, you know, personally requested FIRE's assistance in revising the school's non-discrimination and harassment policy so that you, know, you can have this balance between, you know, uh, guarding against discrimination, guarding against harassment, but also having a commitment towards free expression of thoughts and ideas, sometimes free expression of thoughts and ideas that you know many of us might find reprehensible, but nevertheless belong uh, you know belong to be pro- or should be protected in a society that values free speech. 
Yeah, so I, you know, I think that the governor's blanket across the board executive order here uh, misses that point, and that you know, rather than saying we're just going to exclude DEI altogether uh, or try to push it out of the system altogether, and I think that as Neva said, there, there's a middle ground. Maybe maybe we define middle ground a little differently, but I I think that what we've seen at the University of Tulsa, for example, is really kind of a map to move forward, right? To to you know, learn from these DEI positions that are fairly new uh, and, you know, think about how can they actually, you know, work to, you know, build a more diverse, equitable and inclusive campus while at the same time protecting uh, in individual thought and expression. And uh, that I think would be a more serious look at, you know, how do we evolve these DEI positions over the next few years rather than just, you know, throwing it all out uh, the window at once. Well, you know, it's interesting in medical schools, there's been a lot of conversation about DEI and I read a I read an article a while back about uh, there was a kidney specialist at the, the University of Pennsylvania, the med, med school there, and you had the president of the university uh, basically in a public letter accuse this particular professor uh, of um, uh, of racism against his colleagues and uh, uh, you know students, and basically saying that uh, that there should be a a petition to strip him of his professorship and really the only um the, according to at least what i read the article basically his only purported crime was that uh he basically had raised a question about dei and was uh, opposed to it but in a very balanced uh in a very balanced view he said that uh, that it had some value but he did question some of the ideal the uh ideological extremism that had come with it uh, and he had a real issue with the fact that the, at that time there were more than 40 uh, medical schools across the country that he sh that he uh, indicated had dropped their requirements on applicants uh, to taking the MCAT, uh, which, you know, anyone in the medical area knows is kind of the gold standard for measuring whether a student really has the grasp of being able to um, uh, be successful or be able to uh, um, move through a, a, a medical program. So, uh, you know, when you start seeing this, I mean, the continued lowering of uh, SAT tests and, and many of the things that have gone on under the umbrella of this whole DEI conversation, I think folks now are in a position and lawmakers are in a position with these agencies and, and entities in government to now take a look in the next several months to, to provide a report, I think uh, end of May was the deadline, uh, the deadline the governor gave, to just say, here's what we have, and then lay the argument out. This should remain, this should not, here is why, and have a thoughtful mm -hmm. conversation about it, rather than this knee-jerk radicalism that has really, um, I think, been the issue that has kind of pushed everything uh, on the desk of governors and other uh, leaders to have to make uh, to have to make these uh, uh, make these decisions. But, so it's it's a conversation not going away anytime soon, like any of these big issues that we talk about from week to week. But Neva, isn't there also concern that getting rid of diversity, equity, inclusion programs that you return to the days of? Well, we just don't allow as many black students into our class because we can. We can I, just say, I, you know, do you worry about it being it turning into a form of racism letting more arguably whites... arguably no one wants any any of that to occur and i think i mean i don't even think that's part of the discussion i think there is a uh, um, almost a uniform agreement that you know we don't want certain things to to be kind of the rule of the day mm -hmm. but in the framework of spending what now is not 
you know, thousands to millions to now billions of dollars across the board, across the nation, you know, on this type of this type of program and thought, uh, it requires some conversation. I mean, there's a lot of money being put down on the table and used uh, under the guise of just DEI initiatives or whatever, but folks that are in those positions in uh, universities or in government agencies or wherever it may be. So uh, that's where I think the conversation really needs to be directed. And I would hope that as lawmakers are having these conversations, that they bring folks like President Brad Carson from the University of Tulsa mm. in to talk about how do we how do we address this and evolve these into responsible policies that we enact at our universities and to bring fire in? I, you know, I encourage our listeners go to the it's thefire.org. You can look at their rankings of colleges and universities as well as the other work that they're doing around the country. But I, I think that there are roadmaps for how colleges and universities uh, can navigate. These are very difficult issues, but I, I think it does require some nuanced thinking. I think it requires that we you know, jettison this kind of political orthodoxy that, you know, people on the left are supposed to adopt or people on the right are supposed to adopt and, and really think about these and, and the, the real world application and, and what we want to see on our college and university campuses. The state's pardon parole board wants stiffer requirements for inmates to apply for commutation. Current guidelines allow most prisoners to seek commutation at any time, though they must wait at least three years to reapply if an application is rejected. The new proposal would create new criteria for eligibility, including one requiring the prisoner to obtain a favorable recommendation from the governor. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this request? I, I think that this is just a step back in time. Uh, and you know, frankly, the, the uh, scrutiny that the Pardon and Parole Board has been under in the last you know, several years, including a grand jury investigation, this is the absolute worst way to solve this. You know, one of the examples that was given by the Pardon and Parole Board administration for these new rules is that it would allow them to weed out applications that are you know, frivolous applications, someone who hasn't even served a year of their sentence in prison. Well, how hard is it to weed that out without throwing, without creating these hurdles that make it impossible for people that have legitimately made progress during their time in incarceration to apply for a commutation? Commutation is not an automatic thing. You know, I was looking at the Pardon and Parole Board's uh, website. I think that they have over 20 investigators uh, that are looking into these applications. You know, the idea that we have to increase the threshold so high that very few people would qualify for commutation, uh, then in order to be able to weed out frivolous applications, you know, screams to me that you know maybe some of the folks that are looking at these things. You know, just how I just again, I, I don't think that this is a difficult thing. There there is an issue of you know funding and professionalism at the Pardon and Parole Board that, that should be on the table. You know, this is an incredibly important uh, function of state government that I think uh, the, the folks there have, you know, done, you know, for the most part, a, a great job with very limited resources and very limited funds in the past. But to raise the threshold at a time whenever we are beginning to see for the first time in several years prison population increase in the state of Oklahoma, where we begin to see a decrease, um, I think is a, a real warning signal. And and my hope is that the legislature and, and the governor, uh, and Governor Stitt, who's been you know, very strong on a lot of these commutations and has, has you know gone out, I think, politically, done things that pl many people would think would be politically risky on some of these commutations, and given people second chances, uh, you know, after they have demonstrated a real commitment to, uh, you know, 
either re restoring for the harm that they've committed or building upon, you know, some, you know, uh, skill that they've got or fighting substance abuse disorder, whatever that may be. Uh, this seems to run really counter to what the governor has been doing in his first term and even into his second term. And, and I hope that uh, these rules that are being considered right now uh, would ultimately be rejected by the governor of the legislature. Neva. Well, I mean, I think it is a process and you're right. I mean, the uh, um, the proposed rules are subject not only to a legislative review, but um, ultimately the public has a, a, the opportunity to weigh in on this. I think the hearing has been set for January the 8th. Um, and that is an opportunity for anyone who wants to, uh, as a citizen, come and, and make a statement, come and uh, have their voice heard. Uh, it's certainly part of that process, ultimately, that uh, will have to be decided. But when you talk about, uh, you know, it's been about four years, four years now since the governor had the mass commutation of the of almost 500, I think it was, state prisoners. Um, and then you had the incident uh, where you had... Uh, uh, back in uh, 2021, you had one of those folks who had who had been released, who murdered, uh, brutally murdered uh, three people in Chickasha that less than a year after his commutation. And it turned out in that grand jury report that you mentioned, uh, uh, Ryan, that uh, that this particular individual had been improperly placed on the commutation docket uh, that year um, and had actually the pardon and parole board had rejected the application, his application just two years earlier, two months earlier, excuse me. But, you know, when you look at that, I mean, it does put things in perspective that there has to be a look from both sides. I mean, obviously, uh, I think that you have district attorneys and others in law enforcement who have been concerned that they're that they're in in some of their view, there has been this lax attitude uh, toward these commutations. There needs to be a process. And I think even the uh, uh, executive director, Tom Bates of the Pardon and Parole Board, he said, look, I mean, can sentences be excessive? Yes. But he said that what they were trying to do was to put guardrails um, on the process and uh, to, to strike that balance that would be best for everyone uh, involved. So it, it will be interesting to see what public sentiment is, whether there is, uh, um, um, whether there are a number of people that come on January 8th to that particular public hearing, what lawmakers say when they weigh in. And ultimately, you're right, uh, Ryan, the governor has been, uh, this has been one of his uh, uh, kind of uh, signature pieces uh, from the outset in terms of, uh, as governor, a place where he really wanted to make his mark uh, in the in the criminal justice conversation and certainly has. I mean, with the, with regard to what he has done thus far um, in his administration. So we'll see. But the conversation, clearly, there is there are a lot of points of view on it. And I think all of them need to be heard very carefully before a decision's made. Just want to point out real quick that Lawrence Paul Anderson, who brutally murdered those three folks in Chickasha after he was commuted and was ineligible and, and was ineligible for the commutation docket to begin with, should have never even been up for consideration. He was not part of the the mass commutation of uh, 460 inmates back in 2019. So that was he was he was separate from that. This week in Oklahoma politics is taking a break for the upcoming holidays. Neva, Ryan, and I will be returning on January 5th of next year. Until then, happy holidays and Merry Christmas to both of you. And Merry Christmas to our Happy listeners. holidays. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, and Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU and staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. 
Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.